Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. I'm Esther Yunji Kang, and this is Reset, your daily dose of news and conversation on politics, the economy, arts, and culture. I'm filling in for Sasha today. Gun violence is at the forefront of all of our minds. After the racist mass shooting in Buffalo and the school massacre in Uvalde, Texas, many Americans are fed up and want solutions to this problem. Well, lawmakers are finally taking action. Tuesday night, a bipartisan bill cleared a big hurdle in the Senate. While the bill does propose the strongest gun restrictions in nearly 30 years, it still falls short of broader measures many Democrats want. This is all happening at a national level, but what are Chicago officials doing here in our city to reduce gun violence? We spoke to Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox to get her thoughts. State's Attorney Fox, it's summer in Chicago, the most beautiful time to be in the city. But we know that when temperatures rise here, so do incidents of gun violence. 47 people were shot, at least five killed in Chicago over this past weekend alone. Why do you think shootings are such a persistent problem in the Chicago area? Yeah, let me first say there's nothing like summertime shy mm-hmm. um, anywhere in the world. And it is a lifelong Chicago and it's one of my favorite seasons of the year. But you're right. We tend to see an uptick in violent crime, particularly gun violence um, in the warmer months as more people are out, as there's more opportunity for engagement um, with one another and, and petty beefs and squabbles um, turn deadly when people have guns. And so, you know, I think it's not a new phenomenon. Uh, the sad reality is I remember being a kid growing up in Cabrini um, in the warmer months meant, you know, that we had to hide. And so I think part of the thing that we need to reckon with is that where we are um, as a city, as a nation related to gun violence is not new. The solutions um, have been right before us, but I think there has not been the will to have an honest conversation and do the hard work to address the epidemic of gun violence in our country. Do you see the mass shootings that we just mentioned, Uvalde, Buffalo, as a separate issue from the shootings in Chicago? Not at all. I think gun violence is gun violence. And I I think we've seen uh, political leaders try to distinguish the two. I I think we, we have a notion, even in the city of Chicago, to talk about illegal guns. What we know is that the guns that were uh, used in Buffalo, that were used in Uvalde, that have been used in a number of mass shootings, were legal guns. Um, These were people who were killed by a gun that they were legally allowed to possess. In Chicago, we have a a high level of gun violence by those who have illegal guns, um, who are not allowed to possess those guns. What I will tell you is that, you know, whether there's a receipt for the weapon or not, the damage and devastation doesn't matter. It happens. And so we have a gun problem, legal, illegal. We have an addiction uh, to guns and violence. And we have, I think, a higher sense of urgency 
when we believe that those who have been harmed are not complicit in their deaths than we do um, when we see gun violence in neighborhoods like we see on the south and west sides of Chicago. So this year, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced a few different approaches to, to tackling this gun uh, summer gun violence. The safety plan includes a curfew at the city's parks, more summer outreach workers, more resources uh, through the city's Community Safety Coordination Center. Superintendent David Brown says CPD is using foot and bike patrols focused on troubled spots, and they're also cracking down on illegal guns. Uh, in your opinion, is that is that enough? I think it's certainly incredibly helpful. I think we need an all hands on deck, holistic approach. I think what you're describing in talking about foot patrols and kind of the like immediate what happens in a circumstance that we can predict, right? What what happens when we have festivals or when the beaches are open? How do we secure perimeters? We absolutely need that. People need to be safe. But we also, to the point I was making earlier, need the to address the root causes of this violence. We do know that neighborhoods that are healthy, safe, and thriving have less crime. And so the neighborhoods that are most impacted by the gun violence in the city of Chicago, we have to have like immediate, like what are the things that we can do to make sure communities are safe in the moment, but we also have to invest in economic development and trauma recovery. Uh, We have to make sure that those communities are thriving. And so it's a both and. I think we have to stop pretending that it's too hard to deal with root causes. We've got to just deal with the immediate. We have to do both and we have to invest in both. Having a summertime strategy and then in the fall saying we go back to where we were and not addressing the root causes means that we'll just keep preparing for summer strategies every year and not being uh, as thoughtful about addressing gun violence as a whole. So what movement would you like to see from city and law enforcement uh, that I didn't just mention earlier? Well, I think one of the things that we should talk about is that we are coordinating, right? I think part of that, the, the both and requires a level of coordination between city, state, federal, um, and community members. And so I'm really pleased at the efforts that we have made at the state's attorney's office to work with Chicago Police Department and our other law enforcement partners um, to regularly meet and strategize about you know, areas where we may see potential conflicts, um, looking at alternatives uh, to engagement, uh, particularly around young people, um, and really you know, working in partnership with community leaders and advocates, faith leaders, um, who are closest to the issues and have a wealth of information. And so I think, you know, the things that have worked in other areas that have has seen a reduction in gun violence um, in the past has been that, a true community uh, engagement uh, partnership with law enforcement and those who have been impacted. So you just mentioned that your office is meeting with these uh, other agencies, but what is just your office alone, what, what, is, what is your office doing to address the problem? Sure. So I have to remind people that our office is what I would call a last responder. Um, we, are off, we are only involved after a crime has been committed and someone has been arrested. Now, I think many times people will watch something on the news, you watch something last night and an incident has happened and they will say no one is in custody. If no one is in custody, our office is not involved. We become involved once an arrest is made, and our job is to review the evidence, the facts, and the law to determine if charges are appropriate. Um, And working with our law enforcement partners to build the strongest cases possible. 
And so what I am proud of is over the course of the last five years of this administration, we have seen uh, more gun cases that have been prosecuted uh, during this time period than the time prior to that. Um, we are building and working to have cases that are able to sustain our burden to meet a conviction. Uh, we are doing innovative things like our gun crime strategies unit, placing prosecutors in some of our hardest hit neighborhood um, police districts to work with law enforcement and community members to address who the drivers of that violence are and to strategize before that trigger is pulled. You know, we, we do a wonderful job as last responders, but we also want to be more strategic and thoughtful about how to use the weight and resources of our office to be strategic in the prevention of violent crime. Your office has been criticized, uh, though, for not being tough enough on crime. The mayor, the superintendent of police have both pointed their fingers at you and the court system in the past. I think they're still pointing the finger now. What's, what's your reaction <laughs> to that? Yeah, I'm, I'm a lawyer and a prosecutor, so I believe you have to have evidence. And I, I think one of the incredibly frustrating things about that narrative around finger pointing is often done without the benefit of data. Uh, we don't have time for empty rhetoric. You know, one of the things I'm incredibly proud of is the fact that we are we're transparent. Uh, we were the first prosecutor's office in the country to put every piece of felony case level data on an open data portal. And so the data tells us that we are prosecuting these crimes, that almost 86% of cases that come before us where the evidence is sufficient, we are charging. Uh, we are charging uh, vehicular hijackings. We are charging gun cases. And when it comes to bail reform, it's one of the things that has taken a lot of, of heat. There have been independent studies done by Northwestern University, University of Chicago, Loyola. There's no data. And so I don't get involved in the arguments around finger pointing. I think we should not even substantiate people saying things that are not backed up by the data. And the data tells us that our office is doing what we are required to do. Um, and as hor horrifying and frustrating as this violence is, we cannot succumb to saying pithy things on sound bites that don't get us any closer to solution. That's my response to that. Well, let's talk a little bit about bail uh, and electronic monitoring. The mayor has strongly criticized the criminal court system and said that people who are accused of violent crimes and awaiting trial should not be let out on bail or electronic monitoring. Does she have a point? I, I think we have to start with what the, the mayor as a former prosecutor and lawyer knows is that we're bound by the United States Constitution and the Illinois Constitution. And the way that our Constitution is set up, there is in the Bill of Rights um, provisions on how we uh, issue bail. And the, the truth is the law says that judges, judges must make a determination um, and set a reasonable bail based on a number of factors. And so judges have to look at what is the nature of the offense. You know, the statute in Illinois says that you just can't hold someone without bail arbitrarily. And so we have to follow those rules. And so I understand the frustration. I believe that we should have dangerous people who pose a threat to our communities held in custody before trial. Absolutely. But we must do it in a way that comports with our Constitution. And we cannot have a system in which someone just gets to arbitrarily say that everyone should be in jail um, before trial. That flies in the face of our United States Constitution. Attorney Fox, Mayor Lightfoot has argued that when a person who, quote, has a rap sheet as long as my arm, end quote, commits an act of violence, that it's reasonable to hold them pretrial for the safety of the public. Do you agree? 
And why is that not currently the protocol when dealing with suspects of uh, violent crimes? Esther, I wouldn't say that that isn't the protocol. I, I, I just say it and I will repeat because I think it bears repeating. I think anyone who poses a risk to the public um, should be pre detained pre-trial so long as we meet our constitutional burdens. That's just a fact. I have to often remind people, Cook County, uh, home of the largest single site jail in the country, when I was in high school back in the 80s, um, had a consent decree that was enacted uh, because of overcrowded in conditions at the jail. Back in 2012, we had 10,000 people in that jail. And the data, data, not rhetoric, was that 70% of the people who were in that jail were there because they couldn't afford bail. And the overwhelming majority were there for the nonviolent offenses. We cannot, in times of fear, use rhetoric that is not supported by the data. People who pose a risk should be held. People who don't should not. And we have to look at it on a case-by-case -case basis. And a judge makes that determination. Earlier this month, in response to two Chicago police officers and a U.S. marshal being shot in separate incidents, the mayor also said that people felt emboldened to shoot at law enforcement because they don't feel they're going to be held accountable for their actions. Uh, your thoughts? Back, I like to always go back in history. Back in 1990, when we had almost a thousand shootings in the city of Chicago, or a thousand homicides in 1990, so some 32 years ago, those were the arguments that were being made. Anyone who uh, tries to harm anyone in our communities, including, including law enforcement, are responsible for their actions. This notion of emboldening um, criminals because they are not afraid of consequences. The United States incarcerates more people per capita than anywhere else in the country. If our incarceration rates that we have seen over the course of the last several years would tell us that that in fact makes us safer, that I'm confused as to how we're having the same conversations about addressing violence today than we did when I was a senior in high school. Again, we have to be wedded by facts. I, I can go back and forth on all of the things that the mayor says and would say to you and, and, and say to the mayor and I've had before, let's back it up by data and evidence so that we can make sure that the solutions that we have actually work and that we don't spend all of our time going back and forth about things that we know we can't substantiate. It, well, talking numbers here, your office has a 75% conviction rate, but some critics are saying that conviction isn't enough and that they need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. 15th Ward Alderman Ray Lopez, uh, who's running against Lightfoot for mayor, he said, are they prosecuting to the fullest charges possible or are they pleading everyone down just to get the case finished and finalized? How would you respond? You know, I, I think we have to remind people about process. So, so a conviction means that someone has been found guilty or admitted guilt uh, to a crime. And the fact of the matter that three out of four people who have been charged with a crime um, have been convicted. We also understand that even though we bring charges, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that someone is guilty. A judge, a court um, has to make that finding. And so 75% conviction rate um, is not something uh, to be dismissed about. And again, I go back to, you know, if you were worried about the sentencing, if we're talking about, you know, well, now they've been convicted, we have a prison system in which people serve their time and almost 50% of them end up back in the criminal justice system within three years. You tell me another business model in which the success rate of your model is 50% and we keep investing in it. 
And so again, these are not new issues. This issue of crime and violence, recidivism has existed long before I've come into office. And I think the way that we get to actual solutions is what have we done in the past that does not work? How do we engage new innovative thinking and partners? Um, and how do we make sure that it is transparent and rooted in data, evidence, and best practices? That's Cook County State's Attorney Kim Fox. Thanks for checking in with us today. Of course, Esther. Stay cool out there. As that bipartisan bill to reduce gun violence makes its way through the House and Senate in Washington, dozens of faith leaders staged a die-in Wednesday morning in front of a gun shop in Riverdale, just outside of Chicago city limits. Pastor Chris Harris Sr. is one of them. He leads Bright Star Church in Bronzeville on Chicago's south side. He's going to tell us more. Can you describe the scene for us? Where are you? How many people are with you? And, and what are you all doing? Listen, we're excited there. The faith community is represented out here in an interfaith way out in Riverdale at, at Chuck's Gun Shop. And we think it's important that we not be silent while all of our families and all of our congregants and community constituents are being killed on a constant basis. Uh, This is one of the places where many times they come to get these guns illegally. And what is sold out here ends up being uh, the pain that we experience in the inner city. And we're trying our best as the faith community to not only be informed and not only be inspired, but also be involved. Think about it. It was Texas Governor Greg Abbott uh, who recently used Chicago as a reason to not pass stricter gun laws. Uh, And other politicians do the same. But Chicago is not an island. Uh, Guns purchased outside the city limits uh, make it easier uh, for people to get those guns and come into our city and cause violence. Two out of every five guns used in Chicago crimes are traced to suburban Cook County gun shops. And Chuck's is at the top of that list. And that's why we're here today to shine a light on how easily guns enter the city of Chicago. So, Pastor Harris, why is it important for you as a faith leader to be a part of this today? Well, I told them a little bit earlier, there are three reasons why the faith community has to be involved. Uh, The first reason is uh, the families, right? The the church, the faith community, the, the temples, the synagogues is still the bedrock of most communities. And so the families need us to raise our voice as faith leaders. We can't afford to stay silent. The second reason uh, is are the funerals. We are tired of preaching funerals. We are tired of attending funerals of our loved ones, our community constituents, and our uh, family members. We, we're tired of it. It is constant. And who would have thought that violence and death would have gotten worse in a pandemic? Um, the numbers are continuing to spike. And the reality is the third thing is the future. There is a younger generation that is currently being, uh, consistently being recruited uh, to be a part of gang violence. And we're trying our best to shut off that pipeline, shut off that portal, and give those young people another option. But while we try to shut down this one option, we're trying to give them other options. And this is also why we need federal gun legislation, you know, ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines and require universal background checks and pass red flag laws. And uh, let's close those loopholes. Without this, guns will easily cross our borders, no matter what our Chicago gun laws are. And as faith leaders, it's our moral responsibility to tell the truth, especially when the lies people tell about our city have a life and death impact on our neighbors, our congregates, and our constituents. So we call on people of faith around the country 
to pressure their representatives to pass federal gun legislation. We just heard from Cook County State's Attorney about what local leaders are doing to curb gun-related violence. What kind of action do you want to see at the county or, or city level? Let me tell you, I really do believe that we have to bring the state, the county, and the city including all of our aldermen, to the same table and have a conversation, right, to figure out how can they all work together, right? How can we get all of those political leaders at every single level, uh, all of the leaders of the agencies, including the Chicago Police Department, the Cook County State's Attorney, uh, the Chief Judge, all of those people should be coming together to the same table and say, how can we not just have conversations in our siloed efforts, but how can we come to the same table and work together and bring you know, systemic solutions to this long-standing problem. We have to do it. And there is no institution like the faith community or the church or the synagogue and the mosque that has ever been able to gather people the way that faith leaders and the faith community does. We've got to do this, and now is the time. So what would an effective partnership between local officials and community and faith leaders like you, what would that look like? Well, it would look like, first of all, uh, conversation. You know, putting our feelings to the side, putting our emotions to the side, and at least start the conversation and start to talk. And then the second thing would be collaboration. How do we come together? How do we not argue about what we disagree on and come together on what we agree on? And then after that, after we have the conversation and after we commit to collaboration, then concentration. What are the focused areas that we should be making sure that we put all of our strength and all of our focus into to make sure that we bring systemic change that is sustainable? That's really what it's all about. So it has to be about conversation, has to be about collaboration, and it has to be about concentration. Chicago needs this more now than ever. And imagine, we can potentially create a model that can be replicated around this country. That's Pastor Chris Harris, Sr. of Bright Star Church in Chicago and Bronzeville. Pastor Harris, thanks for your time today. Pleasure is all mine. And thank you to uh, Father Michael Flager, who is a trailblazer, and to Pastor David Swanson, who organized all of us to be out here today. That's all for today's Reset. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our conversations with other public officials. We drop a new episode every weekday afternoon and often on Saturdays, too. I'm Esther Yunji Kang. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.